Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. Sorry for the sound quality, my microphone is still somewhere over the Atlantic. But meanwhile, I thought you guys might want to hear an interview I did for the Ask Historians podcast, which is a subreddit on reddit.com where you can ask all kinds of actual historians historical questions in real time. And I helped them get their podcast up and running. In fact, you might recognize they have the same intro and outro guy that I use. For links to their show or the Ask Historian subreddit, just go to historyofalchemy.com, and I'll link to them in, in my page. So here it is. Welcome, dutiful listeners. So today is episode 23 of the Ask Historians podcast. Uh, so today uh, I'll be talking with a fellow podcaster, uh, Travis, uh, of the Bohemian, uh, of the History of Alchemy, and of the History of Germany podcast, uh, he's a friend of the show, as I will mention several times. He was actually very, very helpful in, in getting what you're listening to right now uh, up and started. So uh, I, today we'll be going over the history of alchemy, and specifically how it kind of goes over the, it relates to kind of the formation development of, uh, well, modern science, just in kind of, you know, methods and uh, ways of thinking about classification and uh, standardization, things like that. So it's a pretty interesting podcast. I hope you really enjoy it. Uh, I will note at some point I do say a genesis as opposed to what I really meant, which was spontaneous generation. So please forgive me for that. But uh, other than that, it is a wonderful, wonderful podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed this episode uh, doing it with someone who knows the, the background uh, kind of editing and uh, production that goes on was was quite uh, well. <laughs> it made things easier for me. I can say that you probably won't notice it, and you shouldn't. So enjoy. Welcome to the Ask Historians podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Ask Historians podcast. Today, I'm here with the user known as Bmonk, but uh, is probably better known to his friends and family and loved ones as Travis. Uh, he is the host of the History of Alchemy podcast and was actually uh, is considered a friend of the Ask Historians podcast. He helped us with a lot of the technical details and some of the intro and outro bits uh, when we were very first getting set up. So um, today we're going to be talking about alchemy and specifically about how it relates to the development of you know uh, modern science. So uh, before we get started, Travis, why don't you go ahead and just uh, give us an idea about what got you into alchemy? What turned you on to this? I mean, it, it is by definition an obscure subject, um, even if it is incredibly well known. So uh, what was your segue into turning lead into gold? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I guess it kind of started with, I, I've, I've been living in Prague for 10 years in the Czech Republic. And Prague is just kind of one of those cities, you know, it's the, it's the city of 10,000 spires. It's a very kind of gothic city with a bunch of towers and, and castles and 
churches and and I was a, just for fun, just kind of to, to get out more. Uh, I became a tour guide, and a lot of the specifically a ghost tour guide, which is the the fun part. And a lot of the stories are related to alchemy in some way. There's the um, emperor uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Rudolf II. He was really interested in alchemy, and he brought a lot of people to Bohemia at the time. And, you know, he resided in Prague. Um, like, you know, great names like John Dee and Tycho Brahe and Kepler. And, you know, he had his own court alchemists and um, there's just so many stories around that and houses were the purpose of being an alchemical laboratory still stand. Some of the oldest houses in Prague are actually alchemy labs, basically. So that kind of got me thinking, all right, you know, I, I love history of science, but I don't know that much about this aspect, you know, what alchemy is and what it has to do with chemistry and whether there's any relationship, you know, to kind of modern times with it. And so I started reading up on it, but alchemy is kind of interesting in the way that if, if like, I, I love history of science, I could, I can pick up a history of science book and just kind of devour it and remember it and, you know, incorporate that into what I know. But if you pick up, pick up a book on alchemy, uh, you start coming across ideas like, like Hermeticism or Neoplatonism or, uh, the Kabbalah, numerology, astrology, um, all kinds of other aspects that are harder for me personally to remember, let's say. They're a little more so esoteric, I start, you could say. Exactly. So I, I wanted to kind of, you know, keep all that stuff in mind, though. So I started taking notes um, just, you know, for my own sake. And then I started answering questions on Ask Historians, actually, and taking more notes for that purpose um, with better sources. Best way to learn is to teach. And then I was like, well, you know, now I have all this stuff written down. You know, I could probably write an outline and probably learn how to record a podcast and start doing shows. So I started recording the History of Alchemy podcast with my co-host Pete Coleman. And we both also do Bohemican, which is a show on the history and culture, etc., on the Czech Republic, Bohemia. Which is mostly just and drinking beer, right? It's Well, there's more than one episode on beer, definitely. <laughs> I think we got one on, you know, Budweiser, Pilsen, uh, oh yeah, you name it. Then recently I started another show called The History of Germany, where I flex my translation skills and my horrible American accent, and I do a German feed as well. So I translate it myself and record it in German um, as Geschichte der Deutschen podcast. <laughs> so and, do, you have, do you have English and German versions of it, or do you just do exactly. German both. Yep. So History of Germany podcast will take you to the English feed and, uh, and there's, you know, there's, it's, they're linked back and forth all over the place. You'll see a British flag or a German flag. So, um, yeah, so there's, there's two feeds, one English, one German, um, just to kind of, you know, practice my German, I guess. So, um, yeah, lots of podcasts. Then, then we also do, we help out with the History Podcasters Network and that's a bunch of History Podcasters that kind of get together and do these collage shows where we all do like a 10-minute segment on one topic. And those are a lot of fun. And this one, the upcoming one is actually on alcohol. So again, you know, I'm like, oh, I got <laughs> Bohemian and you know, alchemy, distillation, right? And then, uh, you know, history of Germany, of course. So, yep. Um, so yeah, that's, yep, that's kind of me living in Prague and uh, recording podcasts. So. so getting to the meat of the question here, I think before we go any further about talking about how alchemy has influenced or been an antecedent to modern science, we should probably define what alchemy is, because I think most people think it involves 
um, taking a toad, putting it in a, in, a, in a cauldron with some sort of dust, uh, stirring it a bunch, and then you get uh, eternal life. So wh- what is alchemy? Yeah, that, that is probably uh, something important to define. Uh, well, yeah, because the, the, the reason the definition itself is important is that we're talking about a, a, history, a, a time span of a millennia plus. So it, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. At its basis, sure, we're talking about, like the Philosopher's Stone, creating gold artificially, basically. Um, then we also have the trying to make the elixir of life. And then you have these kind of side projects in certain times like the homunculus, which is kind of like artificial life. Think kind of Frankenstein, like actually the, the historic figure, Johann Conrad Dippel was one of the inspirations for Frankenstein. And he was an alchemist and, you know, experimented with electricity. I mean, you know, the whole nine yards, like kind of like in the book. Um, that's, that's all alchemy. But if you go further back, it would be very different than if you ask someone from the golden age of alchemy, let's say in the 17th century, then some of the first mentions we have of it are actually in the fourth century. And um, so you can imagine that it just, you know, the reason they would think, okay, why is, why can I make gold artificially? Or why can I, you know, um, live forever? The idea of health and, and what that, and medicine, and what that means is, you know, changed so significantly, and so is alchemy. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned that going back to the fourth century, because it's not, you know, most people, when they think of alchemy, they do think about the, that golden age of alchemy, which I think we're going to touch on a lot more in detail in a bit. But it, it, is, it is a practice that has uh, historical antecedents, not just in, you know, uh, this like 16th, 17th century Europe, but, you know, goes all the way back to, um, you know, early Egyptian uh, alchemists. And there's, uh, there's a whole school of Chinese alchemy. Presumably there'd be some sort of like Indian alchemy as well. Um, mm-hmm. you know, how, how were these um, older and, you know, more diverse schools, were they, I mean, were they interacting with each other? Certainly there's some sort of, you know, you could probably draw a direct line from, you know, uh, Egypt into, you know, Bohemia. But can you also draw in, um, you know, Chinese alchemy at that time as well? Um, the Chinese alchemy and Western alchemy, I'm just going to call it Western alchemy um, for short, is is probably independent. And that, that's also very interesting because what that means is the philosophy behind it and the, and the kind of goal or purpose of it is different. So in Chinese alchemy, it might be mixed up with a philosophy of like Taoism or, um, you know, Chinese philosophy, and the purpose might be different. They might actually be trying to not create actual gold, but something that is purposefully that looks like gold and for medicinal reasons sometimes and or for decorative reasons or whatever and um <laughs> so for medicinal and, they're kind of creating the the generic drug at this point yeah and they're and you know they're saying well it's you know it's cheaper and it still has this if you get close enough it still has the same properties uh, med- medicinal gold is actually interesting because that that happened in um, I, you know, I couldn't really speak to Indian alchemy that much, unfortunately, but that happened in China and the West independently. Uh, I say the West like really vaguely because we are talking about the Middle East. We're talking about uh, the Byzantines, Ottomans. Um, so, I, I mean, the, the, those are all even, you know, ancient, well, not ancient, but Ptolemaic, Egyptian. Those are all one tradition in a way. And Chinese is different, yet they both came up with the idea that um, at least the idea of a, of a drinkable 
gold or, uh, you know, using gold dust in a, in a medicinal way as some sort of tonic. And it is interesting. There are, there are parallels, but no, they're, they're completely independent. Um, so Western alchemy is we, we kind of we definitely have some some concrete um, practices that we could call alchemy, let's say, in the third, fourth century. But they're already quoting older alchemists. But um, if you take Alexandria around the fourth century, we have Zazimals of Panopolis, who mentions older alchemists. But we actually have his like he had, we have an extant copy. So we actually you know, we know we can date him exactly and. Um, you know, he, he already described some sort of laboratory equipment. He's really into metallurgy um, and also some of the myth, mystical aspects of alchemy. So we, we already have a um, tradition that we recognize as alchemy in the third, third century in Egypt, but with older influences, let's say. Then we have Nestorian Christians starting to spread this towards Persia into the Middle East. And then we have when, when the kind of philosophical schools of, of Alexandria die when Christianity really takes hold, then we have the Middle East taking over the tradition of alchemy. And the word alchemy, for instance, comes from the Arabic, um, which it actually goes back to Greek from kimia. Um, but there's, you know, so even the word, they took the word with them. Then alchemy, you know, all the way back to the Greek, it could be, it could be like mixture. Then alchemy, al alchemia from Arabic, and then back to the West as alchemy, one word. Um, and so, then you start to, the Middle East really changes it and also sometimes has different goals, uh, goals like maybe just purifying it or, or even creating imitation gold or silver for um, the sake of jewelry or, um, you know, just ornamentation. Um, it doesn't really have to be gold, you know, it just has to look nice. Wait, and they're, they're straight up about that. The, the idea of purification, because doesn't uh, the, the term alcohol, is what, alcohol uh, itself come from like alcohol, which it was to denote something that was pure. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, alcohol is another one. And specifically, that was kind of an alchemical term because distillation was one of the alchemical processes. So like, like, like Zosimos basically drew out a still, all the parts for a still. And alchemical distillation has to be way more exact than, say, a distillation for alcohol. So they really wanted something that was 95% pure or, and not necessarily water and alcohol, other compounds. And to do that, they might have to distill something 400, 500 times, maybe up for four, you know, up to 40 days. Some recipes are longer, but you know, those are kind of the outliers. And 40 days, so, of course, has you know, the, the kind of numerological aspect to it as well, and sort of biblical yeah. callbacks. Sure, yep, uh, and there's a lot of that, yeah. But, so, you know, imagine you, you, you can't lose the vapor in that time, so we're talking about very, uh, sophisticated equipment in some ways. So, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting stuff. It definitely goes back quite a ways. Then we, we, we start to see an interest in sort of medieval Europe around the eh, 13th century. Uh, Crusades was one influence. Then the reconquest of Spain obviously was another influence. When we had those sources, um, Greek sources translated into Arabic or um, the new Arabic sources, Jewish, Jewish sources, Jewish philosophers, Jewish alchemists. Um, there's a big tradition there. And then that, that got translated into Latin and really started to take hold in the West. And that kind of, you know, brewed and simmered for a couple of centuries until we get to the Golden Age in the 17th century. So before, so, we, before we get to the Golden Age, how much sure. at this point, 
So would these uh, translated Greek texts and, and new Islamic and uh, uh, Judaic texts, would they still be referring back to, you know, those third, fourth century Egyptian, Alexandrian uh, al uh, alchemists and alchemical, I guess, you know, maybe recipes and techniques? Um, how much of that was still yeah. being carried forward? Yeah. So, so Zazamos is interesting because he actually gets quoted a lot. And there's a lot of quoting um, and and na just name dropping, just outright blatant, shameless name dropping. You know, <laughs> so, like you know. I'm sure Paracelsus and uh, Michael Sandivogius would both agree with me when I say blah 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 blah. Yeah, you know, they kind of and, like, well, it worked and, for Hypatia, it must work now. Yeah, and also smack talk. You know, and and woe to those who have listened to uh, you know John Dee's misguided teachings and you know and and so um you you can kind of put them in a time period or you you know what oh you're like oh, okay yeah you know you, you there, there's definitely an ongoing tradition and they do to to show that they know what they're talking about they do try to go back as far as they can often so it, it is interesting in that aspect there it was kind of interesting in the field of alchemy or you know the the, the study of the history of alchemy now is that we're learning more and more kind of of the intricate connections with the Byzantines and also the Ottomans that there was some knowledge flow that kind of trickled east to west through Constantinople and even through Istanbul that really hasn't really made it into the kind of mainstream consciousness when you think about how alchemy transferred to the west. Yeah, as any student of European history would know, basically Greece and Turkey ceased to exist from about the year 500 to about 1400. So it was just a huge gaping invisible hole there. So it didn't, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but so, <laughs> uh, so snarky comments aside, this I think brings us up to what you referred to earlier, that, that golden age of alchemy. So why is it that we call this a golden age of alchemy? What did it encompass? What was its scope? Um, who were some of the major players? Uh, were there any, uh, presumably there were like new developments uh, of both techniques and ideas and philosophy at this point. So give us, give us a primer on that golden age. Why don't you let us know um, when, what, what are the boundaries here? What are the time boundaries? So the golden age of alchemy, if, if that's kind of a vague term in, in some ways, but I kind of define it as 16th uh, up to kind of, you know, 1650s, maybe, maybe up to the 30 years war, let's say. So at that time you have, and, and Prague is a part of that, which is, which is uh, why I think it's so interesting. You have a place where the, all of Europe is kind of divided. There's, you know, there's a lot of tensions between Protestants and Catholics. And, you know, this is just a tense place, um, especially if, you know, even if you're an alchemist, um, just kind of you're being hunted on both sides often, and it's just not a good, you know, the, by this time there's a lot of, there's already the reputation of charlatanism. So if there are, you know, alchemists that are believed in, but they kind of need to prove themselves. And, um, you know, often they were banned in a country and people actually worried about economic problems if suddenly artificial gold were to flood the market. So a prince or a king might bound alchemy in his county or country or kingdom, but then secretly or openly hire court alchemists so that, you know, the, the throne could somehow control the artificial gold that was sure to sweep the economy. 
So we um, actually so, have a, a legitimization of the practice at this point. So, so it's so it's both banned and legitimized, and it's you know both looked down upon but respected. It's it's really interesting. But then, uh, like let's say in the Holy Roman Empire, um, especially under Rudolf II. He was himself Catholic, but very tolerant to Protestants. So he's a Habsburg, uh, you know, Austrian, but he was very tolerant to Protestants. So Kepler was having problems because he was a Lutheran in Austria and then later Germany. But, um, you know, when he was in Graz, you know, he just he kind of had problems because he was a Lutheran. So he came to Prague. Tycho Brahe had problems in Denmark. So he came to Prague. Uh, John Dee had was, you know, starting to feel pressure from his from his uh, kind of collectors, debt collectors in, um, in England. So he came to Prague. And so you just had, you really do have this mix of doctors. Medicine actually made huge strides. So the, the first public autopsy was by a Protestant um, doctor that was later executed in, in uh, 1618. So, you know, under Rudolf II, you just had this flourishing of medicine and alchemy and astrology astrology was very important so in this is the time of galileo you have astronomy and astrology at the same time you you start to have i i wouldn't say chemistry because you know already in the 10th to 13th century you have kind of chemistry in a way in the middle east which you know gets passed to the west but um that's a different story but in the golden age of alchemy you have all these Weird beliefs alongside with, uh, you know, alongside like actual scientific advances. And I like to take Kepler as an example because he studied optics, but then optics gave Isaac Newton and alchemy again. Um, people often say, okay, so uh, astrology was kind of led to, or, you know, astronomy, you know, astrology was kind of this um, hocus pocus, weird divination practice, but that kind of led to astronomy, right? And I would argue no. So astronomy, well, maybe, but but not not, not for the reason you might think, because astronomy um, became better because you had people like Rudolf II saying, what is my horoscope? Like, what's my future going to look like? And then hiring people like Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler to come down and do the math and get, have the best possible star charts merely to do the best possible horoscope that he can do. So even even so, if they weren't doing something that we would consider, or even if their goal was not something something that most people today would consider just bunk, you know, they, they still need to develop, you know, very highly sophisticated and technical tools and and uh, theorems and formula just yeah. to, you know, spit out that bunk. Well, like a good example, I, 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 I tell this example a lot, but um, Tycho Brahe, he wrote a horoscope for the newborn prince of Denmark. And it was, if I remember correctly, it was something like 70-something pages. So, you know, a, a, a pretty good horoscope. I mean, there was a lot of specifics in there. The first 20 pages were, were him writing down how he came to the conclusions. So it was like, you know, based on this star chart, these mathematical things, you know, these projections in astronomy, I now have the following 50 pages of your horoscope. So he put a, so, he put a method section in there. Yeah, it's, and it, but it's just amazing, you know? So there's all this, you know, genuine math and science. John Dee was a mathematician. Even in his time, he was called a mathematician. But the thing is that the term mathematician was not too different from magician in, <laughs> in some people's thinking. Math magician? Yeah, if you, if you think about, like, you know, more like Pythagoras and Kabbalah uh, in the terms of math, 
you know, that part of math, um, that's kind of what, what people were thinking when they called John Dee a mathematician. So now, um, were, he, he, were these uh, these alchemists at the time were mathematicians, uh, you know, astrologers, astronomers, um, the people gazing up at the stars and you know developing, uh, you know, heliocentrism and uh, and new telescopes and such like that. I mean, were 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 they at the same time still practicing those old uh, ideas of trying to create you know homunculi and you know find the philosopher's stone to live forever? Especially in this time, yeah. So. Um, that's, that's kind of the interesting thing. So a lot of writing comes from the golden age of alchemy because they were, they were just really at it. So by now they had talked themselves into that. It definitely was possible. So it was, um, it's, you can make gold if, if just the conditions are only right. So some people believe, well, you have to have God's will. That's why it failed. You know, you did everything correctly, but you didn't have God's will. Astrology or even astronomy comes into play again because certain parts of the procedure of the of your alchemical recipe had to be done under certain astrological or astronomical conditions. Um, you know, this or that planet is in this or that, this constellation, and you should be at this stage at that time. So, you know, instead of just saying, okay, you know, do this for a month, they'd say, no, no, you know, start when this is in Taurus, and you know. So, um, there's a, there's a lot of other things that come into it. Um, especially in this time. So homunculus is, is kind of really comes to shape in this. They would, they would justify the philosophy on Aristotle, Plato, would be argued on both sides of the, of the argument, but they would argue the philosophy with you know, much older sources, but some of the ideas were pretty new, or you know, some of the debates kind of changed in the, in the golden age of alchemy. And so how are those, how are those debates kind of changing? I mean, we, so we have this introduction, of course, you know, of Christian ideas and the idea of that you need to bring everything in. Um, but I assume there's also kind of a, a question over the actual techniques used, because, you know, at the same time, we can see the development of, you know, the, the golden age of alchemy here. We're not talking, you know, more than, say, you know, a, a, you know, a century or so before things like, you know, Pasteur was doing his, you know, his famous experiments to disprove, uh, you know, uh, agenesis. So, you know, obviously we we can probably see the, the institute of like kind of, you know, modern, I guess, I don't want to say modern lab equipment, but, you know, very refined lab, you know, laboratory techniques. So what exactly were they doing specifically um, that we could recognize as kind of, you know, a precursor for the scientific method and techniques? Yeah. So it, it is interesting that you, I mean, it's not a coincidence, maybe, let me say that a century later, would already be sort of the death of alchemy and, and many of these ideas. So this was a, a quick changing time. So you have the Reformation on one end of it and people just taking what they thought was, you know, taking what they knew for granted, started changing their minds, maybe, is one way to look at it. And then on the other end, you have pretty concrete science, you know, people saying like, hey, if I don't see it, if I can't prove it, then, you know, I'm not going to, depend on it, let's say. I think alchemy is kind of in between those times. And John, John D is a good case study because you see that he was born in one world and died in a completely alien world, basically. And um, he was raised, or in his early days, he had, you know, he was Catholic, but that also meant it was a very um, kind of magical way of looking, at, at least for the layman, you know, outside of the clergy, it was very superstitious, like you would you know, you just had this constant belief that demons and angels were always around you. If you do one little misstep, you know, the demon comes a little bit closer. 
if you do something good, the angel comes a little bit closer and the demons go a little bit further away. You know, and they, they just kind of live their whole life in a very superstitious, ritualistic manner. You know, I'm simplifying, of course, but that's what kind of John Dee grew up in. And then uh, the Church of England happened and everything changed overnight. And then suddenly even the Catholic Church had to compete with these new Protestant churches and kind of clean up the superstition and, um, you know, clean up the, the way that the Catholic Church was was handled or, or um, taught. And by the end of John Dee's life, then you already have people like Johannes Kepler, uh, Lutherans, and already, you know, doubting the people that came before them even more. Uh, Kepler kind of, you know, doubted Tycho Brahe his whole life and just, you know, kind of had to keep his mouth shut until Tycho Brahe died. Kind of interesting things like these, this interesting transition. And then you really start to have people trying to figure out, well, I mean, Kepler, you think of Kepler as a mathematician in the modern sense, but he still had some basis on, um, and then Isaac Newton's another great example. So people that we would now consider kind of modern mathematicians or scientists, um, Kepler did believe in like the harmony of nature. So he had, you know, the, that tones are a certain distance apart, so planets must be a certain distance apart. He believed in um, the spheres that the planets sit in. They must be more like the shapes of like platonic, the, the five platonic shapes because of the ratios. And I mean, he still had really funny ideas. Um, as a Lutheran, he, he believed, well, of course it's a heliocentric model because God's in the middle and we're just the sun and the Holy Spirit somewhere else. So, you know, he, he said, of course it has to be heliocentric because um, you know, that's how God would make it. So he was right, but he's, he still brought a lot of these older ideas in to his mathematics. And then Isaac Newton, I think is pretty well known at this point that, I mean, he, he wrote more on alchemy than he did on anything else combined. So a lot of his pursuits were kind of tied back to alchemy in some ways. And it's Isaac Newton. So uh, you know, we definitely think of him as, uh, a, you know, great modern scientist in, in many ways. But even his time is the time in the mint as kind of an economist. You know, people are thinking, well, you know, that also kind of ties into alchemy because he was he could spot a forgery the best. And he had all kinds of theories on, you know, economic theory because, um, you know, this kind of tied into his interest of uh, the philosopher's stone, and you know, trying to make gold. Well, actually, yeah. There's this. There's this a whole kind of uh, side benefit of this fascination with you know purity and making one thing into another and isolating certain compounds. I mean, so I mean, at this point, the, the alchemists were also you know kind of discovering elements as well, like where like you can get uh, phosphorus from from urine. So, you know, what kind of things were they? I mean, do we still see what kind of um, I guess, discoveries, can we kind of attribute to this, uh, to, even if it wasn't their intention to create these or discover these, what kind of discoveries can we attribute to the alchemists of this time? Yeah, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of, like, genuine scientific discoveries done by alchemists. Really, even if you go pretty far back, especially in the Middle East, you have people classifying minerals and compounds in a pretty scientific way. You have um, recognizing that some things are compounds and some things are elements. You know, that's pretty interesting. And like, the, like antimony, phosphorus, zinc, those were all discovered, kind of isolated by alchemists first. Phosphorus, you, you kind of mentioned distilling urine. Um, Henning Brandt, I don't know, we've, we've already brought him up like a half dozen times on so many shows because he, he is a great example of um, it's almost take the idea of sympathetic magic, right? So 
And, and alchemy and medicine have a strong common roots before they kind of split apart. And there is this kind of sympathetic magic thing, thinking where you say, oh, if I can add certain things together that look like gold and do certain things, you know, they might turn into gold um, just because they share some similar qualities. And sand would often be used and then also other yellow things and <laughs> like urine. And, you know, and they would, you know, hopefully just, this would lead to a shower of gold, you might say. Uh huh. Yeah, um, and they and you know they run it through the process and distill it and everything. And Henning Brandt had a very well documented way of you know how he got his phosphorus. It was a pretty well described method, and you know he ended up with this glowing stuff kind of. And and you know I'm I can just picture him like showing all his friends like, hey, look what I did. I got you know for an alchemist that would just be amazing to you know get something that is kind of phosphorescent. So I just, hey, hey, Henning, how did, how did you do that again? Oh, well, I just collected my pee for about a week and then, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and there's a lot of recipes that are kind of like that, but, but definitely, uh, you know, Chinese alchemists actually discovered gunpowder. So um, everyone knows Chinese discovered gunpowder, but it was actually Chinese alchemists that did that. Um, things like ink, uh, there's even like, like Prussian blue was discovered by an alchemist on accident. And then, you know, to go along with that, like dyes, paints, um, you know, they're just, they have these weird compounds and, you know, it creates a different color if you mix up certain things together. So artificial pigments even were created by alchemists. Um, then even way back in antiquity, alchemists kind of, uh, helped improve cosmetics. That's one of the older things alchemists did, um, you know, improvements in leather tanning, uh, yeah, overall, just, you know, kind of classification of things um, in, a, in a new sort of scientific way. And, yeah, it is it is kind of interesting. There is definitely a, a kind of gradual transition from alchemy to chemistry. So at, at the same time that they were identifying and quantifying and classifying all these, you know, pure indivisible elements and um, divisible compounds and such, and seeing that they could transmute one from another was that giving um i mean could could we say that that um helped fuel this this kind of you know golden age and this explosion of alchemy in the sense that you know now you actually had proof that well if we can turn urine into phosphorus then you know why can't we do the the classic lead to gold or or you know anything else to anything else you know if if these things if matter is transmutable then you know what are the limitations there is yeah what, what kind of ties all alchemy together uh, at one point or other, you know, over all 1,400 years of, of the history of it or, or so, um, is really the idea of transmutation. Now, if you break it up by time period, it gets complicated. Um, at some point, people aren't even, or let's say historians, uh, modern historians aren't even clear on when one belief kind of ended or started because uh, you, you have things like medical alchemy, um, which is kind of a term that you would, because like medicine split from alchemy at some point, there was a huge overlap, just like psychology split from philosophy, you know, branches kind of, as, the, as they get more specialized, they split off from each other. Medicine and alchemy were almost one and the same for, for a lot of the history. Um, and there's huge overlap with court physicians that also dabble in alchemy on the side, that kind of thing. You know, then transmutation. So people always believed that at the basis, you have your four elements, you have your earth, air, fire, water. So whatever metal you have, they actually broke down metal differently 
over, or at least at some point, they actually broke thought metal was all metals were basically uh, mercury and sulfur in created in different ways, in different ratios. So you know, under different pressures. So they thought, thought that if you could change that, you could change a metal. But in the bigger picture, you know, there was sponta spontaneous generation, where uh, you know have you have maggots appearing or flies appearing in meat, you know, rotting meat. So and you know, then you have the idea of the homunculus. So there's always the idea that you could change one species to another, or one thing to another, or a corpse into a living thing, or something. Now the how and the why and the is it good or bad is interesting because there was all these debates going on, and this is more directly to answer your question, all these debates, so is it natural or is it supernatural? So some people argued it's God's will, and in fact it's actually esoteric by design. So Adam knew the secret, um, Abraham knew the secret, Noah and Moses knew the secret, so and now I do. And I'm not, sure you're, I'm not sure of, you're supposed to. Yeah. And so... Recasting of biblical figures as, you know, alchemists. Absolutely. Hermes Trismegistus was Moses and oh yeah. And you, you get that line of thought. Then you get, no, no, no. It's, we are kind of mimicking God, but it's the way we bake bread. It's the way that a farmer plants a seed and that transmutates into wheat. You know, we're, we're using nature as a tool to kind of further what we can do. You actually, you get the Inquisition involved. Members of the Inquisition would, would speak out against certain aspects of alchemy, saying, yes, it is possible, not because of God's help or because of nature, but because the devil allows you to do it. There was, there was theories that said um, a demon did not have the power to transmute gold, but what a demon could do was demons have the knowledge of where buried treasure is. They could take that buried treasure and replace it with your lead or with your compound or whatever, you know, when you close the pot. And then when you looked at it again, hey, sure enough, you created gold. So uh, the Inquisition got involved. All kinds of people, you know, took stances. And, you know, is this, is this maybe art? Are we imitating nature? Which if it's art, you can only imitate. You can never exceed which means gold is found in nature, but you can never create it because you cannot be as perfect as nature. So we have all kinds of different viewpoints. We start to get a pretty complex empirical view of why it's possible. By the time of Michael Sendivogius, we're talking golden age now, you have um, the, like the court physician of Rudolf II and a very interesting character in his own right. He um, wrote down the view clear as day saying it shouldn't be esoteric, it's science. Michael yeah, so Michael Sendivogius in clear text wrote down, because he said, nope, it's not esoteric, it's science. Here's the empirical evidence. When you have a, let's say, a copper mine, you sometimes find remnants of like trace amounts of silver. And when you have a silver mine, you find trace amounts of copper. That's fact. You can, you can look that up. So therefore, the way gold must be formed is that it's kind of born of lesser metals, a kind of ripens of lesser metals. Well, the end product of the natural, the earth as a womb theory, is that you get gold. Well, what if you kept that process going? What if you got gold that was purer than gold? What if you got gold that was so pure that if you mixed it with baser metals, it would purify that and it would turn into pure gold? And that's one version of the Philosopher's Stone. If you're talking Philosopher's Stone, um, we're talking as probably as many theories of exactly what it is and what it looks like and what it does as alchemists 
I mean, there's just so many. Um, one person had it as, oh, Edward Kelly, um, John D's sidekick. Edward Kelly had it as a red powder that he received from a Polish alchemist. And, you know, it was like one grain would turn this much of, of gold, uh, of metal into gold. Um, Paracelsus, uh, his was a mixture. I don't remember if it was a liquid or a solid, but you would kind of add it to your molten uh, metals and it would purify the gold. And it, again, it was, and, and there was a ratio. So you could um, do that 10,000 times or a hundred times, or, you know, depending on how pure your, again, it comes down to purity, um, you know, how pure your philosopher's stone was. But, but there was, you know, they, there was some observation behind it. You know, they said, look, here's the copper mine, here's traces of silver. And all these debates, in the end, what they do is, well, they spark more debates. And now you have people that are not alchemists talking about this kind of stuff, talking about, you know, hey, this is a, you know, this is clearly charlatanism, or here's how charlatans work, you know, beware. Even as late as Isaac Newton, Isaac Newton is still inventing new code because he was in the it's esoteric camp, so he didn't want everybody to know. And it was also kind of dangerous. I mean, he would have clearly lost his reputation as a, as a, serial, as a serious kind of physicist um, or mathematician if he had um, admitted to studying alchemy. But you, you definitely get a healthy debate, and then the debate says, well, you know, at, at some point you says, okay, well, here's what's not possible, but here's what is possible, or... I don't really want to, I don't really care about the philosopher's stone that much, but I got all this lab equipment and I got all this know-how, you know, what if we try to purify this other thing and just see what happens? Or what if we, um, you know, try to prove this theory? And at that point, you really have what we recognize as science. You would see the word chemist with a Y um, or chemistry referring to the creation of, chemi- of uh, making the philosopher's stone. So the word chemistry already existed way before chemistry did. And then chemists, in the modern sense, would deliberately start to separate the two words. And it was a deliberate kind of public campaign, sort of public relations campaign, where they said, okay, we gotta, we got to divorce ourselves from these charlatans and these um, Aristotelians, you know, these kind of Neoplatonists. We got to, we got to, you know, we're we're the Royal Society, or you know, we're this university. We need to definitely establish ourselves as a scientific organization. And um, the, you know, they they use the old alchemical um, lab equipment, and you know, just improved it over the years, obviously. But um, it was a gradual descent, and it took. Um, centuries, if just to get to the philosopher's stone, you have so many ways to get byproducts and so many steps you have to take. Do you want me to talk about a basic recipe real quick? Well, yeah, and, and then actually, uh, I'd like to, uh, right after that, I'd actually like to talk about um, the role of kind of these charlatans and kind of bringing down yes. the reputation. Oh, man. So that is, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But before that, that, is, that I would is. actually <laughs> like to live forever. So could we go ahead and get that recipe? Okay. The steps involved in, you know, just the alchemical recipe is pretty impressive and it's, it's, you know, pretty complicated. And for them, especially, cause you're taking things into account, like I said, the constellations and where the planets are. And there was often a, well, a, a Neoplatonistic meditation, which it's not like Eastern meditation, but it's more like a sitting and contemplating God. By, by contemplating God, you become closer to God, sort of. And so there, there was a spiritual aspect to just being in the lab. You know, you just, you're, you're fermenting your, your mixture and, you know, you just 
want God's blessing. So you're meditating. It's, you know, it's the right time of the year. Uh, constellations are all set up correctly. But then on top of that, um, you have what we would already recognize as, hey, this is a, you know, this is kind of science. You could follow these steps. Um, you have calcination, which is, you know, boiling something down. Basically, your, your product is ashes. You're, 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 you could start with plant matter, all kinds of various things, but you're, you're getting down to ashes. And then chem, uh, alchemists are famous for actually really improving, you know, knowledge of kind of acids and classifying acids and that kind of thing. And that's because the next step is, is dissolution. And acids were really described first by alchemists and for their properties and what they could dissolve and whatnot and, and how you got them. And it's basically adding water to your ashes and some kind of mixture of uh, vitriol, which, you know, you get sulfuric starting compounds is normally mercury, sulfur, salts. Those are the kind of the basis. Those are, that's what's going to change your metal. And then you get your acids or whatever you got out of that, you know, watery substance. And then you want to separate that. So there's different ways, depending on what your starting ingredients were. You're either um, trying to separate a mineral, um, trying to separate a, a liquid. You might want to bind your salt together. That could be the next step conjunction. And then you have a kind of a mash, a brew. So depending on what you put into it, you often let that sit for a while and kind of let it ferment. And, and you know, fermentation would kind of be the next step. step. There's a subset of that called putrefaction. And if you think about it, fermentation and putrefaction are kind of the same thing. But in some recipes, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> dung was added either regularly or at least, you know, one off and then just kind of let, let sit there. And so I just, you know, if I now imagine an alchemist lab, I just imagine it as the most vilest thing I could possibly <laughs> imagine smell-wise. And we're talking blocks away because you're starting with sulfur and then you're adding dung to it, maybe daily. And... You know, I just, I can't imagine that smelling well, smelling nice. Um, I'm sure there's some Kim students out there who are saying, well, you get used to it after a while. Um, oh, geez, yeah. <laughs> so but the neighbors these, might, yeah. yeah. We have these very complicated, multi-step uh, processes for, you know, basically creating things and transmuting things uh, that also have the additional problem of needing, you know, God's will or needing to have, you know, mercury in the house of Taurus or whatever. So it seems like it would be ripe for someone to be able to um, scam people and say, well, sorry, it didn't work, you know, this time because, you know, you didn't provide me with the Pyrenees materials or, you know, uh, yeah. I'm going to need, a, a, you know, extra 50 ducats to go buy, you know, this one particular thing or we need to wait till next week. So uh, could you talk a little bit about, you know, how charlatanry and scammery um, kind of infiltrated into alchemy and what effect that had on, you know, real alchemists wanting to define themselves more as the scientific side of things uh, to kind of, you know, disassociate themselves with these people. To give you a couple of pictures, so at the time of Isaac Newton, um, he, as a real alchemist, tried, he had his own kind of tests. So there's a stage where the product, it's, it's a stage of, in, in the stage of, of okay, yeah, it's in the stage of like sublimation or distillation. One of those steps, if you do it long enough, you're basically heating your material and you would get what's called the peacock's tail. And it was basically when oils would start to rise up. And this took a long time. I mean, this was, you know, a broth that was on, on a um, stove, if you will, or, or some kind of uh, like really regulated heat for days, weeks. And then eventually you'd get this peacock's tail very slowly. 
And that was Isaac Newton's test. If someone came to him and started talking about, you know, seeing this or getting to that stage, then Isaac Newton would, would keep talking to you. But he had to be very paranoid of charlatans because, again, if, if this was found out, he would lose his reputation. So he was very careful. That was an example of how he avoided them in, in sort of the age of reason. Um, but if you, if you go further back, I like, there's, there's the example of Gilles de Ray and and I like it because he kind of gives account, or let's say his trial actually gives accounts of some of the ways he was ripped off. So Gilles de Ray was a kind of brother in arms of, of Joanne of Arc. Then later he unfortunately became known for his child murdering habits. And they are gruesome and horrible, and I will not repeat them. But he was a very notorious person by the time he was arrested and, and he had his trial. And the worst stuff was thrown at him. It was, uh, you know, just all kinds of, I mean, he must have been possessed and demons and, you know, um, he's a heretic and, you know, Satanist or whatever, or demon worshiper. And he just, you know, and, and just the worst crimes were associated with him. So I, I wouldn't repeat them just for the matter of that they might be uh, exaggerated, but he definitely was bad. They definitely found a lot of uh, dead children in his chateau or, or castle or whatever. And um, the thing is, is that he was also interested in eternal life and he was interested in the Philosopher's Stone. I mean, who's not? So he kept trying to hire alchemists. He, he couldn't do it himself, but he kept trying to hire alchemists. And this is what's, what happened to a lot of patrons. First of all, to make more gold, even if you're, even if you're following uh, Paracelsus's method, which was very common as soon as Paracelsus died, basically, you would need some starting gold. You would need something to kind of seed your concoction. And then that would create gold that was even purer than gold and that you could kind of keep it going um, to a degree. But you would need some gold to seed it. Well, some charlatans would just say, well, I need actually quite a bit of gold. I need, uh, you know, I mean, hundreds of, of uh, you know, whatever dollars worth in, in modern times or, or you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever, and it has to be pure gold and I need this amount, and or, or silver. And Gilles de Ray would, you know, he would hire one guy and one guy would be like, okay, I need to be all alone because I'm, I need to commute with demons or whatever. And, you know, he'd go to the next room and never come back. Or one guy would say, okay, I, you know, I need this much starting capital. Good, he gets the money. And then he says, okay, I just need to go get my equipment and then never comes back. And um, there were some pretty interesting tricksters, like tr some people actually trying to give the impression that there was another demon in the next room or, I mean, some pretty interesting stuff. So definitely just the fact that if you think about it, the recipe took months. So you need to have a very consistent heat. So um, Tycho Brahe actually kind of ran his, he was a nobleman. He ran his, he was a very rich nobleman, I should actually point out, in Denmark. Um, it's, it's estimated at one point that he may have had 1% of all of Danish wealth. And Tycho Brahe was actually running dry because his alchemist lab, to keep the fires at that consistent temperature, he was cutting down forests. And, and so you need starting capital, you need a lot of wood, and you need a you know, supply of dung, you need raw materials, you need to feed the alchemist, you need to feed the assistants. So there's a lot of wiggle room for you know, in the next, in the four months it takes you to do your recipe to say, hey, I just need to step out to the corner shop, get some smokes, and you're never seen from again or heard from again. So um, there, there's a huge, I mean, yeah, I mean, Rudolf II, Golden Age of Alchemy, 
brings all the alchemists he can to Prague. Obviously, no gold is created. He puts them all in the castle grounds. He makes them all stay in, in one road, which is now called the Golden Lane. You can still see it in Prague. No gold. He locks them all in a tower and says, okay, you guys got 10 months. And he starts feeding them less and less. And he says, your recipe, you said 10 months when you came to Prague. Well, it's, that was five years ago. You now have 10 months. And uh, when that didn't work out, they were all put to death. So that was the end of the golden age of alchemy in Prague, for instance. And, um, you know, there's repeating stories throughout Europe in different times. So, yeah, charlatans, you know, turns out every, who knew? Every single alchemist in Prague was a charlatan. So it's just, it's, it's pretty interesting that they, they did have this horrible reputation. And it was just, if you really believed in it, and they did. I mean, they, they were just sure, you know, that it's possible. Everybody Everybody knows an anecdote. Everybody knows somebody. It was actually at one point believed that a significant portion of the gold in circulation in British or English coinage was alchemist gold. And, you know, so, I mean, the belief was there that, that, that you could create an artificial gold. And if you, if you had just a good enough reputation, then um, you had quite a bit of credibility. You could probably get away with that and, and be heavily rewarded while you're doing it. Um, we have yeah, a, a pretty clear delineation of when the golden age of alchemy ended in uh, Prague, of course. But do we have other certain events or um, just kind of uh, people or, or publications or demonstrations that really brought down this idea of alchemy as, you know, even if it was a tarnished uh, profession, something that was actually real? You know, what, what was the shift that, uh, you know, that led people like Tycho Brahe or Kepler or Newton of, of that, you know, kind of generation and age to hold both what we would call scientific ideas and also alchemical ideas, while later generations really saw those as, uh, as two different ideas. You start to wonder more about what an element truly means and what the idea of what matter is, um, that's never gone away. So you've always had philosophers thinking about what is matter and, and you know, what do the properties of matter tell us and how do they hang together? And those chemists really um, doing more than just trying to look for gold. They're, they're trying to piece together how the world works. And that, that is what makes alchemy so interesting. But eventually you just have these ideas kind of winning out. You know, you, in, the, in the 17th century, you start to get um, conservation of mass, conservation of energy. Um, you start to get the um, laws of chemical reactions, like, you know, your input and output have to be the same amount of atoms. You get the new idea of atomic theory. So, you know, I, for me personally, the, the final nail in the coffin is 1807, John Bolton's publication of, of the atomic theory. But you have alchemists after this. You have alchemists, a famous alchemist in the 1920s. You have, um, it kind of lives on, but it, especially in the 19th century, you have the occult revival. And personally, for the history of alchemy, I don't, I don't even, I try to avoid um, any sources that I can't trace back before the 19th century because you have the occult revival and that is such a, a um, looking glass. There's such a bias in, um, if you look, if you, you know, if you take their writings on what alchemy was, um, you get a much more spiritual alchemy you get, um, you know, all kinds of new ideas of, you know, magic and witchcraft, and it's very kind of Victorian. And 
So you have something very different, but, but alchemy still exists in some ways, just the mainstream has dropped it. All mainstream scientists in the 19th century you know, believe it's absolute quackery. There's no excuse to trying to make gold in a lab. But already in the, 17th, in the 18th century, you have um, these pretty straightforward theories like, you know, some, here's an element, this is not an element. This is, um, you know, these kind of have these relationships together and these are different. And, um, you know, an element is indivisible. So you, you can't split and you can't turn one atom into another atom. Um, these ideas start to um, really spread and kind of take hold even in the mainstream, I mean, um, not just in the academic circles, but but they start to change the way the public kind of thinks about what matter is, let's say. So um, I, I'm, I love that question, you know, what people thought matter was. So we have the atomic theory of, you know, Democritus way back when, um, you know, pre-Socratic, pre basically. Then we have Pseudo-Democritus, who was an alchemist, and then we have the atomic theory. And, you know, the I mean, you always have people thinking about you know, what is indivisible, what is matter, what, you know, how far can you take things in theory, how far can you take things in nature, so, so that never goes away, it just kind of, um, you know, the word alchemy definitely then gets applies to only these people that are looking after gold, not the people that um, invented porcelain in Europe, or, um, you know, invented these dyes, or invented gunpowder, it's, no, no, these are, you know, it gets defined in a certain way, and if, if you're an alchemist after that point, you can, uh, there's a, there, it's a fascinating part of history to look at, uh, like Rosicrucian symbology of, they took John Dee's symbols, they took um, alchemical symbols, and they, but they turned it into much more of a spiritual alchemy of like the transmutation of the soul. And I'm not saying that didn't exist before. You, you, you had that in some kind of Gnostic, you know, some Gnostics had similar ideas and, and other places had similar ideas. But you get this like, you know, I'm transmuting my soul, or the elixir of life becomes more of a, well, it kind of always was a, an idea of a health tonic, but um, it takes more of a concrete form of it's definitely going to make you live forever. Uh, in a way, you know, these, these questions about, you know, these central questions about transmuting things and creating life and living forever are, are really almost constant questions. And, uh, you know, as you've been talking, I've been thinking like, well, okay, we're not trying to create homunculi now, but we are trying to create artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, we're not mm -hmm. trying to use a philosopher's stone to live forever, but there are definitely people out there, working, you know, with telomeres and there's Aubrey de Grey gets a lot of press whenever he speaks about, you know, death as or a old age as a curable condition. Um, you know, or even the idea of non-transmutable, you know, elements. And of course, now through you know modern atomic theory, we know about half lives and you know fission and fusion and things like that. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, I did a. I I really like the story of uh, Marie Curie and and um, discovering radioactivity. And so I went ahead on the history of alchemy and did a show on on her and her life and you know her discoveries and what that meant. And I said, but. You know, the reason this is on the show is, first of all, if you listen till the end, I will tell you how to make gold. No BS. I will tell you how to do it. And and second, hey, this is transmutation. Marie Curie actually wrote down the, the theories of transmutation. She turned, she turned I, can't, I can't remember what it was, right on into a, a different element, you know, if and and uh, so she did it. She's an alchemist. So there you go. And then at the end of the show, I said, oh, yeah, you got, you know, particle accelerators and, you know, powerful enough lasers. Yeah, you can re remove a proton or whatever and create a, another element. And 
it's done, you know, it was done. I gave the brief history of actually creating, and it actually, it's an isotope of lead, um, creating uh, atoms of gold from atoms of a certain isotope of lead, you know, in uh, 1930s, I guess, it was the first time it was done in Japan. Um, and I was like, hey, so they actually led into gold. You know, it's it's been done. So it is actually possible with modern science. And, and that is the interesting. Did they really get it right? Because they're proven right by us in the 20th century? Well, no, because the, the foundation, the basis that they were going off was absolutely incorrect, period, bottom line. You know, it, it was not possible. But the idea that it can be done was possible. They, they were just going about it completely incorrectly. No, I don't give them credit for, you know, coming up with the correct idea in that sense. But um, their, their whole basis on why it's possible was absolutely wrong. But yeah, we did it. And yeah, we're still talking about, you know, trying to reverse aging and, and uh, absolutely, you know, artificial life. Yeah. I mean, with um, even stem cell research and that kind of thing, it is, it is much less gross than if you look at homunculus, because that is seriously disgusting. I, I want to do a show on homunculus, but I, it is really disgusting. I'm not sure how to... Um, there's a great deal of bodily fluids involved, isn't there? <laughs> There's a great deal of bodily fluids and, and letting it sit out in the warmth for months. And oh, yeah. But um, um, sure, like those ideas still exist. So um, it, it is the history of science. There's, there's some Kabbalah mixed in, but, you know, who doesn't love some esoteric, you know, hidden knowledge here and there? And um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to learn about the philosophy. I, I learned a lot about, you know, never really heard about Neoplate, Neoplatonism before I... Um, you know, started researching it and, you know, had to go interview a professor to kind of figure it out and, you know, have him tell me for my show. And it was, you know, really interesting kind of learning about all these other things that tie into this and, um, you know, where these ideas kind of came from. So, yeah. Well, Tra Travis, thank you so much for talking to us today. And also thank you for your support in helping get the Ask Torrens podcast up and running originally. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on and talk about um, uh, alchemy and how it reflects on our modern world. So thank you very much. Yeah, so thanks a lot for having me on the show. And again, if, if you want to, if you like what you heard, you know, there's um, History of Alchemy podcast, History of Germany podcast, and in German it's Geschichte der Deutschen. <laughs> Um, or just listen to what I sound like in German, even if you don't speak German. And then also Bohemican podcast at bohemican.com. It's about Czech Republic. Um, and they're all on iTunes. And yeah, and absolutely, um, I, I'm really glad that the Ask Historians podcast is taking off. I, I'm really enjoying it. So, and I, you know, recommend it to everybody I know. And then um, also the History Podcasters Network, which I've definitely mentioned you guys a bunch there. Um, they do really great things where they bring in all kinds of history podcasters and um, give everybody a chance to kind of work together. And um, it's it's a similar philosophy of what you guys are doing, you know, with with all your different members and interviewing them. So um, it's it's pretty cool. So yeah, thanks again for having me on the show. Ragony about the Ilkhanate, that is the of the Mongol Empire that came in and kind of uh, started to dominate areas of Central Asia and the Middle East. Uh, the responsible for the very famous sacking of Baghdad, uh, if if that is your cultural touch point there, uh, this is actually an interesting part that it will be a uh, part of a kind of a two parter of with different people because uh, the uh, episode after that I'll be actually talking about uh, the uh, Yuan Dynasty, the portion of the Mongol Empire that uh, took over China uh, and lived there for a couple centuries. Uh, in the following episode uh, with uh, Jaffs. 
there's lots of S's in those, but yeah. Uh, so interesting, it'll be an interesting kind of a correlation uh, and comparison to see, you know, the, the very far western, very far eastern edge of the Mongol Empire at that time. So hope you tune in then. You've been listening to the Ask Historians podcast. For more history like this, visit us at reddit.com slash r slash askhistorians and ask over 100 historians and enthusiasts anything you want to know in history. Find us on Twitter as at askhistorians and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Or visit askhistorians.libsyn.com. Thank you very much for listening and join us next time on the Ask Historians podcast. 